people are very present. What happens if I hold it? Uh, Sam Baker has arrived, and so we can begin. Uh, I'd like to begin actually by saying that this is the Jack Farrell podium. This is handcrafted, and this comes from uh, from Jack, and it's a, a kind of a reminder that he was one of the founding members of the British Studies Group, and this goes back all the way to 1975, and so he has seen a lot of changes. <laughs> Uh, so I won't say anything more, actually, except I hope that Jack will explain how the best pronunciation of Jane Eyre is. <laughs> Go ahead, Jack. Uh, well, as, as I was saying, uh, I actually have heard Jane Eyre uh, presuming to get a, you know, a play on words, though you don't hear that anymore, and I think that Jane Eyre will suffice. Um, I, uh, uh, by the way, I may have uh, built this uh, lectern, but it's nothing to what Roger has built uh, in this world-class institution, and I'm always honored to take part in it. Uh, I, can't, I can't believe it's been going since 1975, <laughs> but there we are. And we have the books to prove it, don't we? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to talk about uh, one of the Brontes uh, today. And uh, there was a time when uh, they tended to be seen, Emily and Charlotte, as a kind of pair of Yorkshire goonies. Um, nobody quite knew what to make of them. Uh, and I still think that Emily Bronte does not get her just recognition as a truly great novelist. Um, certainly somebody who can sit at the table with George Eliot and it, in my mind she is the Victorian Virginia Woolf because of the subtlety of her uh, feelings, the depths of her perception, the complexity of her emotional judgments. Um, so Emily still I think needs to be relieved of some condescension Charlotte, on the other hand, was enormously popular right from the beginning. Jane Eyre was an immediate bestseller, and Charlotte was, was uh, always successful as a novelist. Um, but also, some of the same condescension, uh, you know, carried on, uh, even with her. And uh, I thought I'd give you a, a little example of Things have improved greatly, but this is the kind of thing, when I started teaching the novel, this is the kind of thing that you might come across uh, with respect to Charlotte. Uh, this is a, a parody by, of all people, Bret Hart, uh, called Miss Mix. And I'm just going to read you a, a paragraph. Blunderbore Hall, the seat of James Rochester Esquire, was encompassed by dark pines and funereal hemlocks on all sides. The wind sang weirdly in the turrets and moaned through the long-drawn avenues of the park. As I approached the house, I saw several mysterious figures flit before the windows, and a yell of demoniac laughter answered my summons at the bell, which was answered by a scared-looking old woman who showed me into the library. I entered, overcome, 
with conflicting emotions. I was dressed in a narrow gown of dark serge, trimmed with black bugles. A thick green shawl was pinned across my breast. My hands were encased in black half mittens worked with steel beads. On my feet were large patens, originally the property of my deceased grandmother. As I passed before a mirror, I could not help glancing in it, nor could I disguise from myself that I was not handsome. <laughs> Drawing a chair, uh, excuse me, she, she, the, the, the elderly woman invites her into the, the library, and uh, she uh, enters and draws a chair into the recess. I sat down with folded hands, calmly awaiting the arrival of my master. Once or twice, a fearful yell rang through the house, or the rattling of chairs and curses uttered in a deep, manly voice broke upon the oppressive stillness. I began to feel my soul rising with the emergency of the moment. You look alarmed, miss. You don't hear anything, my dear, do you? Asked the housekeeper nervously. Nothing whatever, I marked calmly, as a terrific scream followed by the dragging of chains and tables in the rooms above drowned for a moment my reply. It is the silence, on the contrary, which has made me foolishly nervous. The housekeeper looked at me approvingly and instantly made tea. I drank nine cups. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of thing that, uh, that you used to sort of uh, find frequently in discussions of the Brontes, but, but that has much improved, uh, thank heavens. Uh, in any case, I'm going to be talking about Jane Eyre, and the first thing to look at in Jane Eyre is its plot. Uh, and the first thing to notice about the plot is the scheme of Jane's journeys. She begins at Gateshead, wonderful place to begin. She then goes on to Lowood, and things get very low at Lowood. Then they get worse at her next stop. Thornfield, which is very thorny. Then comes Marsh End, where Jane has to struggle through the marshes. Finally, she partially retraces her journey until she comes to a semi-Edenic garden called Ferndean. Just from the names, we can tell this is an allegorical journey and that the novel is fashioned in the first instance after John Bunyan's late 17th century classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan's immensely popular book tells the story of a protagonist named Christian who was weighed down by the great burdens of his sin. Christian must travel from the grievous city of destruction and discover the celestial city, the city on a hill where he and his wife Christiana will find salvation. Along the way, they must pass through awful places like Vanity Fair, the Slough of Despond, and the Wicked Gate. Excuse me a moment. Um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress plots Christian's search for his spiritual identity across a symbolically demarcated landscape where temporal and spatial boundaries create a guide to, for the protagonist and no less for the reader. Moreover, our recognition of Bunyan's allegory as a model for Jane Eyre is reinforced by numerous elusive passages in Bronte's text. Even the final chapter is awash with explicit references to Bunyan's book. 
But however much the narrative is formed by Bunyan's allegorical journey, it simultaneously mirrors in its motions an altogether antithetical journey founded on quite a different pilgrimage. The second journey is brewed from the heady potion that Byron had created in Child Harold's pilgrimage, the sensational and boisterously erotic poem that appeared in the four cantos during 1812 to 1818, and that made Byron by far the most popular poet of his time. One of his devoted admirers was Charlotte Bronte, who in her young years memorized hundreds of lines of Byron. The most provocative aspect of his fiery poetic was the dark, brooding, guilty figure of the Byronic hero. There is no question that Rochester and Jane Eyre descends from this dangerously attractive wanderer, as the following lines from Child Harold will suggest. The poem's narrator is considering the figure he has created in Harold. Long absent Harold reappears at last, he of the breast which fain no more would feel, wrung with the wounds which kill not but ne'er heal. Yet time, who changes all, had altered him in soul and aspect as an age. Years steal fire from the mind as vigor from the limb, and life's enchanted cup but sparkles near the brim. His springs of life were poisoned. And again, Bronte's text is littered with allusions to Byron's poetry and the Byronic hero. Jane's position thus becomes what Yeats would later call in one of his majestic late poems, the subject of a dialogue of self and soul. Jane is journeying in a double direction where her effort to discover her spiritual identity must somehow, must somehow comprehend the self-divisions and the multiple moral dimensions of her being. Even if we as readers do not recognize the Bunyanesque and Byronic frames of identity that Bronte is using, we soon get caught up in Jane's probing and often unsettling accounts of her fantasies, anxieties, and childhood speculations on who she is and where she is. There is, for example, the trauma of her experience in the Red Room at Gateshead, where her habitual feelings of fear, betrayal, and anger deepen into, quote, a dark deposit in a disturbed mind. Bronte's highly imagistic presentation of her heroine in many such passages portrayed Jane's strenuous efforts to penetrate what amounts to her proto-Byronic identity. Yet at other times, the forlorn child ripens into the position of a steady, mature narrator who is stabilized by her penetrating judgment and convincing perception. Here's a passage from Jane at Lowood where she is one morning eating her scanty breakfast. My vacant attention soon found lively attraction in the spectacle of a little hungry, hungry robin, which came and chirruped on the twigs of a leafless cherry tree nailed against the wall near the casement. I crumbled a morsel of my roll and tugged at the sash to put out crumbs on the windowsill. 
A passage like this, of course, implies an equivalence between the deprived Jane and the hungry Robin. Both are trapped in a threatening environment, but the parallel between them is managed by the Jane who is seeing and seeking her moral center. The novel repeatedly prompts in us a pervasive shifting of focus between Jane's fearful experiences, like those in the Red Room, and Jane's account of her morally intact and mature being. The kind of shifting we must do in order to read the novel duplicates the kind of shifting Jane must do in order to read herself. In effect, the framing of the Bunyanesque and Byronic journeys that locate Jane's pilgrimages actually signal not the contradictions of self and soul that divide her, but a language of symbolic action, as Kenneth Burke would call it, that creates at the level of plot what Jane experiences at the level of character. To illustrate this point, I want to turn to another episode at Lowood. Jane is befriended at Lowood by a student even more disadvantaged than she, the appropriately named Helen Burns. Helen is steeped in the Bunyan account of identity. Though unfairly and miserably treated at Lowood, Helen practices a fervent evangelical faith. Jane is mightily impressed by Helen's ardor and conviction. She draws closer and closer to Helen as Helen declines into a deadly illness. Jane's own spiritual fervor is manifested as Helen warns Jane against, quote, her too impulsive, too vehement love of human beings. She tells Jane, as though reading a chapter of Bunyan to her, that there are greater spiritual resources, quote, than your feeble self can attain. Quote, besides earth and besides the race of men, there is an invisible world and a kingdom of spirit. That world is round us, for it is everywhere, and those spirits watch for us as they are commissioned to guard us. Helen's greatest impact on Jane comes one evening when she shares an hour of close connection with Helen and Miss Temple, Lowood's one uh, caring teacher. Jane is so enthralled by feeling accepted rather than estranged that she listens in rapture to Helen's explanation of her religious convictions. As Helen's sermonette reaches its climax, the text gives us this wonderful description. Quote, then her soul sat on her lips, and language flowed from what source I cannot tell. Has a girl of 14 a heart large enough, vigorous enough, to express such a swelling spring of pure, full, fervid eloquence? The image of Helen's soul sitting on her lips magnificently captures the near coalescence of meaning and being that the whole novel takes as its project. And Jane is enthralled rather than baffled by her realization that the language of Helen's discourse is grounded in some inspired but unknown source. Jane is again confronted by a miracle of utterance that the novel itself is trying to register for us. We can take yet another instance of the novel's buried language to see how deeply Bronte is layering Jane's complex identity. 
The specific case I am going to quote returns us for a moment to Gateshead, but its relevance permeates the narrative. Jane, as usual, is suspected of disobedience and has been hauled before the Reverend Mr. Brocklehurst to be chastised. Brocklehurst's wisdom about young children extends no further than his belligerent Calvinism allows. Well, Jane Eyre, he says to her, and are you a good child? Impossible to reply to this in the affirmative. My little world held a contrary opinion, so I was silent. Mrs. Reed answered for me by an expressive shake of the head, adding soon, perhaps the less said on that subject, the better, Mr. Brocklehurst. <laughs> Sorry indeed to hear it. She and I must have some talk. And bending from the perpendicular, he installed his person in the armchair opposite. Come here, he said. I stepped across the rug. He placed me square and straight before him. What a face he had now that it was almost on a level with mine. What a great nose, and what a mouth, and what large, prominent teeth. Do you know where the wicked go after death? He asks her. They go to hell, was my ready reply. And should you like to fall into that pit and be burning there forever? No, sir. What must you do to avoid it? I must keep in good health and not die. <laughs> um, so here you have a kind of stereotypical Bunyan-esque scene and Jane's Byronic rebellion as a counterstatement to it. And what I'm trying to suggest is that this is what happens throughout the novel. There are these two discourses that confront each other and speak to each other. And Jane is gradually becoming the uh, product, in a sense, of those discourses. As in the case of Jane and the Hungry Robin, the novel here assimilates its story to yet another reservoir of expressive language, the fairy tale. It draws heavily on this reservoir. How can it be that Jane, at every stage of her pilgrimages, encounters two false sisters, together with a distant male figure, a snobbish surrogate mother, and an indiscernible fairy godmother? Obviously, the novel is providing us with a version of Cinderella, much less Little Red Riding Hood, one that seems painted by Picasso since the principal figures appear in distorted and displaced, but still readable form. At Thornfield, this version of the fable appears in the narrative when the lofty dowager Lady Ingram visits for an extended stay with her two daughters, Blanche and Mary. The former is marked by, quote, her arched and haughty lip, and the latter by her expressionless face. From her obscure spot in the room, think fireplace, Jane generously allows that, quote, most observers would call them attractive. Meanwhile, quote, I saw Mr. Rochester smile, his stern features softened, 
and his eyes grew both brilliant and gentle. Rochester is becoming a proper Prince Charming. But the undercurrent fairy tale is revealing Jane's smoldering rage and jealousy. Never a good sign for Cinderella. However, Jane has been privileged by a psychic fairy godmother who has a special gift for intuitive knowledge. Quote, he is not to them what he is to me. He is not of their kind. I believe he is mine. I am sure he is. I feel akin to him. I understand the language of his countenance and movements through rank and wealth, though, excuse me, though rank and wealth sever us widely. I have something in my brain and in my heart and nerves that assimilates me mentally to him. Note that Jane cannot quite identify the something in her heart and blood that forms her connection with Rochester. But since we know the story of Cinderella and Prince Charming, we readily recognize the dynamics of desire that motivate Jane at Thornfield. Rochester has awakened Jane's own Byronic being. Yet Rochester's soul does not sit on his lips. Quite the contrary. Even in the earliest extended conversation she has with him, she rejects his conviction such as that the difference between a guide and a seducer is easily recognized. Jane is bewildered by what he says. To speak truth, sir, I don't understand you at all. I cannot keep up the conversation because it has got out of my depth. What Jane feels she is losing is her trusty sense of authenticity, her frequently renewed sense of what road to take. Things get so bad in the toils of Thornfield that she finally realizes she has been snared, quote, in a web of mystification. She wonders, quote, what unseen spirit has been sitting for weeks by my heart watching its workings while leaving her without answers and without direction. The red room of her distraught childhood is gradually reappearing as the madwoman's attic, a place where speech is being replaced by screams. The degeneration of speech into screams marks the development of impending crisis at Thornfield, which has become a remarkably unsavory place. As the narrative unfolds its account of Thornfield, we are given scenes where the entertainment is, tellingly, games of charades. The charades are followed by the arrival excuse me, by the arrival of a gypsy fortune teller who, surprisingly, requests Jane as a client and whose strange thought wrapped me in a kind of deceit. This episode no sooner concludes than a foreign traveler named Mason shows up, arriving apparently by jet from the West Indies. His presence turns Rochester whiter than ashes. Despite his shock, Rochester treats Mason as though he was an old college chum. Once Rochester gets Jane alone, he attempts to explain himself to her by offering a disguised autobiography that takes the form of his own Byronic pilgrimage, but ends by confessing, but ends by confessing to a lot of hanky-panky, both in Jamaica, where he met Mason, and in Paris, where he undiplomatically reveals he knew quite well what Paris was for. 
after all of this, you half expect to see Burl Ives striding into this room saying, there's nothing but lying and mendacity in this place. Nothing but lying and mendacity. The central crisis of the novel occurs, of course, after Jane has finally agreed to marry the deceiving Rochester, when a lawyer from London, Mr. Briggs, who represents both Richard Mason, the elusive friend of Rochester, as well as Mason's sister, Bertha, breaks up the wedding in progress because Bertha is Rochester's erstwhile wife. The following morning, Jane wakes with all the anxiety of crisis still upon her and asks herself what she is to do. The answer, quote, the answer my mind gave, leave Thornfield at once, was so prompt that, and so dread that I stopped my ears. The moment epitomizes the Thornfield portion of Jane's pilgrimage. She has received so many warnings about the obscure road she has taken that she has been stopping her ears and not learned. Bertha's shrill screams and pyrotechnics should have been enough to send Jane packing, but Rochester has a fetish for hiding mistresses. He tries a new approach with Jane. Quote, you shall go to a place I have in the south of France. France is always getting, coming up here, dangerous moments. You shall go to a place I have in the south of France, a whitewashed villa on the Mediterranean shores. There you shall live a happy and guarded life. A tempting offer, no doubt, but Jane finally eludes the Byronic lore with the help of another red room dream. This time the dream discloses, quote, a white human form that speaks to her spirit. Jane describes the spirit's tone as immeasurably distant, but its whisper as immediately present. She has retrieved the power of pre-linguistic communication that enables her moral consciousness and her sense of reality. The form says, my daughter, flee temptation. And she answers simply, I will. There are many ways to read this exchange as the critical literature on the novel shows, but however we read it, the episode reinforces the main point I have been making here, namely that Jane as a character reflects the plot of the novel itself through a complex interweaving of voices, discourses, and symbolic actions that inscribe its drama of self-discovery. Jane makes several different attempts to elucidate the access she seems to have to a sort of meta-language of the inner self, akin to Helen Burns' inspired utterance and missing entirely from the shrouded world of Thornfield. As she resists Rochester, for example, she listens for, quote, a gentle aerial to compose her responses, but all the voices of nature around her, she says, remain inarticulate. She is accustomed, as she puts it, to opening, quote, her inward ear to a tale that was never ended, a tale my imagination created and narrated continuously, while her mind's eye dwelt, quote, on whatever bright, vision rose before it. For the reader, this experience is palpable since the interweaving I have been outlining is altogether present as multiple allusions, echoes, parallels, and subtexts cross one another on the page. Quite unexpectedly, Jane plums the heart of her meta-language 
in a quiet contemplative moment at Thornfield where, unprompted, she gives us a complicated account of how her inward ear and her mind's eye function in the workings of her imagination. Oddly, this passage is nearly entirely overlooked in the critical literature, but for me, it seems to me absolutely crucial to the, to the novel. Quote, presentiments are strange things, and so are sympathies, and so are signs. And the three combined make one mystery to which humanity has not yet found the key. I never laughed at presentiments in my life because I have had strange ones of my own. Sympathies, I believe, exist. For instance, between a far distant, long absent, wholly estranged relative asserting, notwithstanding their alienation, the unity of the source to which each traces his origin, whose workings baffle mortal comprehension. And signs, for aught we know, may be but the sympathies of nature with man. The passage is extraordinarily pertinent to the theme we have been exploring. Presentiments are foretellings of the future, a plot projection, so to speak, such as the Red Room dreams that recur at pivotal moments in Jane's narrative, or prefatory tales that give us guideposts to the narrative we are following. Sympathies, as Jane is using the term, constitute telepathic communications that arise from the mystic bonds of a common life that is stronger than the barriers of time and space. And signs form an alternative language, a words worthy in discourse, recollected by the self in special moments that, as Wordsworth said to his Brontean readers, for example, open consciousness to poetic faith. Or they could be spoiler alerts, like explosive lightning strikes that will split a horse chestnut down the middle to warn a naive young woman that she should get out of Dodge in a hurry. Jane's exposition of presentiments, sympathies, and signs refers to phenomena that permeate Bronte's novel and that illuminate both the dilemmas and the decisions Jane faces. As she says, she feels ensnared in a web of mystifications. And in her journeys, she calls on what she sometimes addresses as, quote, some good spirit, unquote, that can provide her with the self-knowledge she needs to deal with the questions that beset her. For Jane, that self-knowledge can only be grasped within the framework of a transcendent language that inherently dissolves mystification. At the zenith of the illusions and mendacity that twist her whole world, Jane explicitly tells Rochester what a transcendent language is. Quote, I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom, conventionalities, nor even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit. She wants no more of seeing through a glass darkly. It is difficult to define the latent language that characterizes Jane's idea of speaking spirit to spirit, though as I have been saying, the text is imbued with an approximation of what she speaks. 
I think we can borrow Freud's term, the uncanny, or unheimlich, which he introduced in a long essay of 1919 and identified as a puzzling perception of the familiar in something, of the unfamiliar, excuse me, in something familiar. As Freud puts it, the uncanny, quote, is in reality nothing new or alien, but something which is familiar and old established in the mind and which has become alienated from it through a process of repression. A decisive example of the uncanny for Freud is a manifestation of the id in the presentation of the ego. What I want to do is credit Charlotte Bronte with introducing into the narrative structure of Jane Eyre a layer of uncanny language, especially in the sense that Jane is guided and enlightened by discourses that she can understand even though they always remain mysterious to her. There are two other stages of Jane's journey that involve the marvelous use of Bronte's uncanny novelistic twists. Jane, having gotten the message to flee Thornfield, at last braves the open Ronit in order to escape the fate of being converted by Rochester into being converted by Rochester into another Bertha Mason. Of course, her journey goes badly, so that she soon finds herself friendless, penniless, utterly alone, and no GPS. <laughs> in spite of these problems, and without a clue as to where she is going, she manages to arrive at a shining light on a hilltop, which is easily identifiable as Bunyan's celestial city. Not only that, but of all the locales in England, the cottage she comes to is home to her only living family, three cousins whom she does not know she has. Only her two female cousins are at home and a kindly motherly figure who watches over all of them. She might as well have called herself Cinderella instead of Jane Elliot, especially since an Adonis, her male cousin by the name of St. John Rivers, soon shows up as a highly eligible Prince Charming. However, though Jane is quite happy to have found female cousins and a surrogate mother, Sinjorn proves a dud. As opposed to Rochester, who is a prince of darkness, tempting Jane into the precincts of desire, Sinjorn outbunions Bunyan. He excites in Jane not passion, but piety. Jane has richer voices in her head. The fulcrum of Sinjorn's regard for Jane is his increasingly important plea to her that she come out to India with him and be his missionary's wife. Granted, he does not want to tuck her away in an attic, but yet he is just as committed to making Jane a prisoner of his power. But again, Jane is rescued by the scripts that reflect her real identity. Amazingly, through St. John, St. John uh, Jane comes to learn of her own connections with the Mason family, and that despite the many deceits that her wicked stepmother perpetrated on her, she is heiress to the Mason fortune, and as a result, she becomes not only, and perhaps superabundantly, the pilgrim who has reached the Shining City, the Cinderella who has gained a two-sistered loving family, and an actual fairy godmother who can and does distribute her surprise inheritance to her newfound cousins.
All of Jane's fantastic fulfillments of her evolving identity at Morehouse actually derive from another triumph of her expressive self. As she grows into the roles that her discoveries at the cottage on the hill establish for her, she remains, as usual, partly anonymous and masked. But one day, Sinjin, who has been in touch with Briggs and who has heard much of the story of a woman known as Jane Eyre, receives some documents that have been retrieved <coughs> from Gateshead. Among these papers are discarded sketch papers that the real Jane has made. He shows the supposed Jane Elliot some shabby slips of paper, quote, with stains of ultramarine and vermilion. In the ravished margin of the drawing paper, the actual Jane sees, quote, in my own handwriting, the words Jane Eyre. From the smudges of her art, Jane appears. Jane, just as inchoate and uncanny discourses blend into Jane's autobiography, the preliminary art of the sketches instantly disclose who she is and where she has come from. It is not Sinjin who is discovering Jane. It is Jane discovering Jane. Even more dramatically, Jane, who is at the brink of accepting a programmatic marriage to Sinjin for the sake of the moral duties he has nearly persuaded her to accept, she hears a voice, quote, a known, loved, well-remembered voice calling her over an immense distance, it must be said telepathically, from the heart of nature itself, filling her, as we discover in the final two chapters, with presentiments, sympathies, and signs. The uncanny language that flourishes so powerfully and so indelibly in the interstices of the written text finally unites Jane with herself and the narrator with the reader. Bronte has positioned Jane between the symbolic utterances that frame her story and the unutterable story that constitutes her identity. Thanks very much.